0: This episode is brought to you by AMREF Health Africa, the largest Africa-based international NGO with programs in over 35 countries in Africa. With a vision to create a lasting health change in Africa, AMREF's projects aim to increase sustainable health access to communities through human resource solutions, service delivery, and investments in health. Hello and welcome to the META podcast. A podcast dedicated to bringing you live recordings from META events covering a wide range of multidisciplinary topics converging at the intersection of innovation in the African continent. In this episode of the What's Good Redesigning Society series,
1: respiratory diseases are among the the biggest causes of death in the world today. Almost 65 million people are living with a chronic respiratory disease or COPD. Um, almost 300 million people are living with um, asthma.
2: In the continent, it's actually the worst. We're starting to think about you know what's the future hospital, for example, going to look like? Um, and based on that, how do we build risk or health insurance solutions based on that?
3: What, what I think we need to start is to invest in our human resource. Um, by and large, that is the driving force in the in healthcare provision. And that's where we need to start, to keep investing in our human resource.
4: What is digitally treatable and not? And I think once we start using language like that, like what is digitally treatable, it might bring down the hype of what telemedicine and teleconsultation can and can't do.
0: In this episode, we discuss the current and anticipated shift in healthcare business models in the COVID-19 era. We talked about the impact of the pandemic on the healthcare business models, including the COVID-19 health insurance cover, how the future hospital will look like, and prospects for digital health. We also spent time reimagining the healthcare structure through the what we should start, what we should stop, and what we should accelerate prism. And last but not least, our speakers gave their future predictions for the healthcare sector. The speakers included Dr. Waruguru Wanjao, a public health expert and strategy consultant at Dalberg, Dr. Patrick Gatonga, the CEO for Jubilee Health Insurance. Dr. Emmanuel Amadi, a senior medical officer at the Ministry of Health Kenya. Lewis Wanjohi, the co-founder and CEO of Tambua Health. And moderated by Rachel Jones, who is a senior research and design manager at Jacaranda Health.
5: So I'm going to start with... Dr. Patrick, out of all the the data and studies that are out there, what is sticking out in your mind the most as far as what African health companies should be paying attention to in this moment?
2: Yeah, that's that's an interesting question, Rachel. Um, So so I think there are are several things that uh, have come out of the uh, pandemic, and there's a lot of information and uh, data that has continued to come through. I think when the pandemic hit earlier in the year, particularly around the period of March, April, there's a huge, huge gap of information. Uh, we still have a significant gap, but I think between now and then there's quite a bit that has come out. For me, I think there are a few sort of data points that um, uh, stick out. One is just, you know, the, the understanding of the phenomenon itself and its impact on the on the local economy, the global economy. You know, it's it's not in every situation where you have, you know, the same thing being a cause... You, well, where you have a trigger um, that creates a crisis um the impact is still on the same trigger and you know the, the long-term impact is still on the same trigger but if you think about the COVID pandemic at the heart of it was a health crisis you know just a, a virus that you know the origins are not still very well known about and out of that the immediate impact was a huge health crisis the emergence of a disease that we didn't know about and that spread really quickly i think for me one major insight out of that is you know just you know helping us to put into perspective um what healthcare really means to the economy and productivity of the entire world the fact that a virus like this can Literally bring the world to a stop, it create an economic uh, economic contraction and possibly uh, some recession as uh, is predicted. It's really a huge phenomenon. I think the second thing for me in terms of what I've seen from the data is the fact that uh, we we have to learn to live with this. I think when the pandemic began, there were discussions of uh, you know post-Corona era predictions and you know different scenarios built around how long would this crisis last for. Uh, It began with two months, three months, uh, predictions of a year or so. But really, when you look at the data right now, particularly the data across the continent, we are now at over a million cases. Uh, I was having another discussion earlier, and... When you look at the data, actually, what you see is the cases are still rising and there's very strong correlation between the number of reported cases versus testing, eh? which basically tells us is the more and more we test, the more we'll see cases coming up, eh? which in, is another way of saying that you know, the virus is fairly well spread out and we shouldn't actually be thinking of a post-corona era right now. It's probably going to be a virus that is with us for you know several years to come. The crisis will probably last at least another year or so. So I think it then begs the question of you know, how do we adapt or how do we uh, redesign um, our thinking and our society, which is why I thought this discussion was very timely.
5: Yeah, thank you. That, that's a very helpful overview of, of the fact that we are looking to live with this situation for quite some time and we'll need to continue to collect data as we seek to understand both the health and economic effects. So I I'll, I'll like to pose the same question to Dr. Waurugu from from where you sit, what are the, the positive and negative effects um, that you think that African health companies should be paying attention to in this moment?
4: Thank you for the question. And I do think there are positive and negative effects, but I think from one caveat I'd like to put before I kind of list what I think are the positive and negative effects is that from a non-African business perspective, these all, for me are opportunities. It's if the negative effects would be more the things Corona has unearthed, but for us to also look at them as opportunities where businesses can consider to, to plug into. And so how I'd like maybe, what i would summarize for the negative effects is what Corona um, or COVID-19 brought out. So I would list them as You know, the the lack of resilience in the health system, I think a quick data point to add to that. And when I say resilience, it's the health system's ability to respond to what's not already set out. I think a quick data point that can be used to back that up is, for example, the critical care or the need for critical care. And, you know, Kenya has what we know is less than 1,000 beds, but if you look at other African countries, Benin has 18 ICU beds. For the whole country and so it was a negative thing in that it brought out that there's no resilience for example to give critical care but then you know it's an opportunity for local businesses to really plug in and see if that's something that they can respond to i think another quote-unquote negative effect is the the weakness of surveillance systems um, across and surveillance systems can't be responsive they have to be existent right we have a lot of s- systems that surveil things that are already of interest in the health world, like HIV or TB, but when there was a need for a surveillance system of a novel, a novel, you know, disease, then that surveillance system that was responsive didn't exist. How I'd turn that as a business opportunity would be to say, you know, yes, there's even the biological element of a surveillance system and the labs and all that, but there's also the technical aspect. And is that a possible business opportunity? And how do we turn the negative a not not responsive surveillance system to a local business opportunity with an underline of of local. I think the positive thing that, some of the positive things that it brought out though, this crisis, was the potential of um, the African business community to respond and to manufacture. You know, all of a sudden when there was a global Hit and you know you couldn't source globally. Some things are made locally, and I think for me that's certainly a positive thing that came out, um, and something businesses can continue to capitalize on. We do have X number of you know, if nothing else, given your context, um, CS has done in in Africa, and if we if it was possible, or in Kenya, if it was possible for us to manufacture some of these things like masks um, and some elements of PPE even looking into making our own ventilators. Given that we know the demand, um, the constant demand for some things that would change um, or will change in a predictable way, is that an opportunity for us to know as African businesses that we actually can manufacture some of these things. So imagine a world in which in a few years, everything that's needed for every C-section in Kenya, which is predictable over the next X amount of years, is produced in Kenya. And for me, I like to see that as a positive thing that could could come from, from COVID-19. Um, and I think that would be the one positive thing I would hope that we can continue
5: to, to build on. Yeah, absolutely. Necessity is the mother of invention, and it seems like this moment has pushed a lot of innovation and invention. Um, and you see that on the smallest scale from from people changing to start producing masks out of, you know, kitenge or whatever, um, to even uh, medical supplies and, and ventilators and things like that. So, moving to that discussion about innovation, uh, we actually have somebody who seems to have had a crystal ball uh, last year when he started a respiratory health. Company in 2019, and that is Lewis. Um, and so, Lewis, you, you've worked in respiratory health and, and we're doing that even before the COVID pandemic. Um, but presumably you have shifted focus in light of what has happened. Um, and I know that you received some funding from MIT and Stanford to do COVID-specific research. Uh, so First of all, how has your business model changed since uh, COVID hit?
1: Yeah, I think we've been working in, um, Satambua Health has been working in the respiratory space for, I think, two years now, about two years now. And we worked on um, the the diagnostic process from using just spirometry to some some form of um, high-level devices like CT scans and all that. And our main focus as researchers and engineers in the company is to use sound or acoustics to develop imaging technology that doesn't use radiation. So think of uh, how a doctor uses a stethoscope, but that stethoscope actually making a diagnosis uh, based out of um, deep machine learning uh, and signals processing. So we've been working in that space for about two years now. I think when COVID hit uh, early January, what we actually saw is that um, COVID won't change a lot, but it's an accelerator and it will actually show what are the problems in some uh, healthcare systems. So if um, there was an already existing respiratory problem, respiratory diagnosis pro- problem, it's going to be accelerated by COVID and just reveal the truth about um, these types of systems. And so what we are doing is we've been working in the space for um Trying to understand how um, we can use novel technologies, such as uh, machine learning and um, signals processing. This is what is going to be the future of healthcare. So, at Tamboy Health, we actually believe that um, healthcare will eventually leave the building, which means healthcare will leave the hospital because the hospital is a building. And um, some of the technologies that are going to be um, important in that case is going to be uh, an innovation in devices or the hardware devices that we actually use, uh, the software and the whole ecosystem of devices. If you think about um, respiratory health in the continent and also in the the world today, um, respiratory diseases are among the the biggest causes of death in the world today. Almost 65 million people are living with a chronic respiratory disease or COPD. Um, Almost 300 million people are living with um, asthma And in the continent, it's actually actually worse in terms of patient outcomes. So what we have done so far is that we have developed a process that um, reduces the cost significantly to the diagnosis process. So um, doctors don't really have to use big expensive CT scans or VQ scans. And um, this is all based out of um, novel technologies. And today we have... Uh, innovated in that space a lot. And I think the future will be set on how we make decisions, uh, technology decisions as well. So as much as we speak about healthcare systems and hospitals, you have to think what types of devices the doctors are going to use um, today and, and in future. And um, uh, we, we are going to see an increase in the number of companies using AI and a lot of venture capital flowing to biotechnology and medical devices. Uh, as an example for us as well, we have seen an increase in the interest for what we are actually doing today.
5: And as somebody who is is leading a company, I wonder with you know, you're you're talking about acceleration and the future opportunities, but what is it that keeps you up at night when you think about maybe the risks or where where we're headed?
1: Yeah, so if you think about technology and healthcare, if there's one industry that has given technology an indigestion or uh, constipation is actually um, healthcare. So uh, we haven't seen a lot of synergies in healthcare uh, and technology. But because of COVID, uh, we've seen an increase in the use of technology in healthcare. We've seen AI being used to accelerate the vaccine processes. Um, we've seen Mo- uh, Moderna Health uh, in the US uh, using AI to narrow down uh, how they actually decided which vaccine to test. We've seen automation in labs, companies like Emerald Labs, which are automating the whole process of COVID testing, all based out of um, simple robotics and AI. So we are going to see what keeps me up at night is how just a thought about how we can actually have a synergy in um, technology and healthcare from I come from a computer science background, and what we have seen is that it's really difficult for these two industries to connect in some cases. And I'm sure some of the people in this panelist will explain about telehealth as well and its its impact. Uh, but hopefully, we'll, in future, we'll see a lot of automation, um, tele-ICUs and medical technologies that actually use uh, novel technologies and actually solve um, real problems in healthcare following all regulatory processes. So if it's going to be the FDA or CE, uh, all based out of software and the synergy of software and technology really and, and, and healthcare.
5: Yeah, I, I like how optimistic you are about this uh, opportunity for technology. And I, I'd be interested to ask Dr. Emanuel, uh, working for the government, I'm sure that you see a lot of innovation, maybe new devices, e-health programs. Uh, there are apparently more than 180 e-health startups across the continent. And I'm curious, how often do people come to the government or to you and, and really work to solve your problems or to support what the government is trying to do?
3: Well, thank you so much for the question. Um, indeed, um, there's been a lot of startups that have, have come up to solve or to kind of bridge the gap, as it were. We, we know that the public health sector probably is, it's, it's well structured, yes, on paper. But uh, when you go to the ground, there are a lot of uh, discrepancies and a lot of gaps are in These startups uh, probably have, have come up to bridge a gap that is already there, especially in, in seeking of healthcare and things to do with delayed care. In in such aspects, it's caused detrimental uh, effects uh, when people are actually seeking for care and are not able to, to receive the care. For example, in our public health system, right now we have a deficit of blood in our blood banks. Uh, we have been crying out to have systems where blood is well collected and um, put in a central place and you see a lot of setups have come in to help in the collection of blood so that our blood banks are not empty, as it were. Right now, it's, it's a huge mess right now. Your company right now working in the maternal area. You understand very much that uh, blood products are really important, especially for mothers who are delivering through CS. Yes, we have a lot of postpartum hemorrhage, and these are high risk to leading to death and maternal mortalities. So we, we are seeing a lot of investment in such areas where startups are coming up uh, to support the, the public sector. Uh, but much more needs to be done, not, not just as much by the private coming to help the public, but more input needs to be put in the uh, public sector uh, to, to alleviate this uh, kind of scenarios that we have, especially with delayed care.
5: Yeah, thank you. It's it's very important to keep in mind that these should work oh, synergistically as much as possible. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think Dr. Gitonga will go back to you. I already see a couple of questions. People have a lot of um, questions about what the impact is going to be on insurance and what health insurers are seeing on the horizon. Um, So what do you see as far as what, uh, I know this is a very broad question, but what the impacts of this moment may be on health insurance models?
2: the the impact on insurance is um I wouldn't just isolate it to insurance but really uh the healthcare landscape eventually when I think about it it it's sort of two things that um coming to mind at the end of the day from an insurance perspective you know insurance is about risk and uh you know doing the business of risk pricing the risk hedging some bets and seeing how they they turn out uh of course with um you know strong use of data and analytics to understand you know, how risks would uh, eventually evolve. I I would say when the pandemic came, um, it was quite, it came as a shock to the, not just the health insurance industry, but to the entire insurance industry, uh, just like with any other sector. Um, And I think there are a number of things that have started emerging around how do we actually shape insurance to be part of what makes our healthcare system more resilient. Um, I think Dr. Rukuru talked about uh, resilience, um, and I think fundamentally, that's that's the question that um, is in our minds as insurance, and, and particularly so for you know for us here at uh, Jubilee, trying to figure out you know what's going to be relevant in the future for health insurance. And um, there are lots of opportunities, I would say, uh, in my view, exploiting those opportunities can't be done by you know health insurance in isolation. I'll just throw a few uh, you know practical examples. In traditional insurance, you pay a premium and when you go to hospital the, you know the promise is that you know bills will be covered uh, to different limits depend, depending on what you buy but since the pandemic began we've seen some sort of movement away from physical hospitals but that doesn't mean that people are not getting well you know those who really need to get care still need to get care but there is a real risk around them uh, staying in hospital environments uh, and we've seen practically uh, some of them including healthcare workers so some of the questions become you know, knowing that this pandemic will be with us for a while, we are still waiting to see how a a vaccine comes out. I think by all indications, you know, before mid next year, we should have a vaccine out. Even when the vaccine is out, the questions are going to emerge around its efficacy. Um, So in terms of health-seeking behaviour, I think the pandemic will really fundamentally shift how people seek healthcare and how they see the physical health uh, facility. And I think that's what will make innovations like what Lewis has mentioned more relevant. We're starting to think about, you know what's the future hospital, for example, going to look like? And based on that, how do we build risk or health insurance solutions uh, based on that? I, I think it's going to leverage on, on, on two things that in my view will play very strongly going forward. One is around, you know how do we build the right ecosystems to support development of the right health insurance solutions um, or the right, really, healthcare solutions. Because at the end of the day, we want we need to build a healthcare system that's resilient, that is scalable. You know, today it's COVID-19. We don't know what might emerge in the next one, two years. But the systems we build must be able to, you know, withstand shocks. And within those shocks is the aspect of financing. And when such risks emerge that can't be, um, absolutely carried solely by insurance, just because of the uh, you know the principles around which uh, insurance business operates. You know concepts like risk sharing, I think, will become more and more relevant. And um, how do we share risks across the healthcare uh, ecosystem? If you think about it, we're going to have a vaccine probably in the next uh, one year. You know, there, there are questions we need to ask ourselves, like you know how how are we going to make that vaccine accessible, and how are people going to be able to pay that for that vaccine? Well, how insurance companies going to make it payable as part of their of their policies? So if you think about that particular example, it can't just be done by insurance companies alone, Uh, vaccine manufacturers, the distributors, you know, there has to be an element of risk sharing that looks at how do we eventually benefit uh, the consumer and how do we build an ecosystem that is able to supply what a consumer requires in a timely fashion, in an accessible way, in a very simple way, but also in a way that is commercially sustainable or a way that's sustainable in the long run. eh? Um, so I think there'll be a, a lot of ecosystem play, which I think is inevitable for us to uh, really build a, a much better system um and then the second thing is around use of you know digital technology uh, there's a lot of data that's now available, but using that data requires quite a bit of thinking as well around you know what's even the right granularity of data, what kind of insights are required from that data to be able to make our solutions more responsive to customers um How do we integrate, if you take the example uh, that Levis gave of, you know, uh, diagnostics being available remotely through technology, how do we make sure that those, uh, an end user, um, or say somebody, you know, in Nairobi or wherever else in Kenya, rural or urban, they can still get access to such use of technology. Um, So I think, um, I I see a lot of ecosystem play um, and a lot of use of, uh, you know, digital technology. Um, in a much more accelerated way than uh, we have even imagined before.
0: And now a word from our sponsor.
6: In 2017, AMREF launched Innovate for Life. This accelerator program selects the most promising health entrepreneurs from around the world and offers them a tailored combination of networks, health knowledge and business and leadership coaching. Our mission is to co-create shared value partnerships between these entrepreneurs and AMREF programs to jointly achieve sustainable health impact and scale in Africa. The accelerator program includes a combination of in-person and remote work, workshops, and independent learning and co-creation over three phases. Both the health entrepreneurs and the AMREF representatives are properly supported by experts. This may range from business development skills to marketing and leadership skills. Innovate for Life partners with diverse organizations, strengthening AMREF's existing network and creating opportunities to develop further linkages with different industry leaders from different sectors.
0: You're listening to The Meta Podcast.
5: For Dr. Waruguru, uh, you know, there's always the hype around digital technology and what it can do for healthcare and things like teleconsultation. Um, I was talking to my grandmother last week on the phone and she said, the doctor just called me. Why am I paying him? You know, I, he didn't even see me. <laughs> um, and so I'm curious from your perspective, when we think about these changes and this push towards telemedicine, wh- what is the hype and what is the reality and, and what as a physician would you would you say that we should Keep, but maybe the things that we also need to, af- when it's possible to see people in person, go back to seeing them in person.
4: I think the, the hype is that it is the silver bullet for all, for all health problems, and especially in this time of Corona. Um, and I've come across a, an interesting framework, so to speak, or an interesting notion more recently that's called what is digitally treatable and not. And I think once we start using language like that, like what is digitally treatable, it might bring down the hype of what telemedicine or telemedicine and teleconsultation can and can't do. That being said, uh, I mean, even in Kenya, we've seen a lot of teleconsultation propping up, and in institutions who likely could have done it before but didn't have the prompting to do it, so that would be, you know, like some of the bigger private hospital chains, because that's been more public, you know, they've, uh, they are now giving teleconsultation as an option, and it's COVID that drove them to that. So I think even given the restrictions of teleconsultation, I think some of the reality is that there is value in seeing how can digital, digital given um, the constraints on what digital can do to deliver quality care given those constraints how can digital be used to, to increase value and by increasing value it can be increasing value in terms of access either to specialists it can make medicine more convenient and means you know less impact on the economy it can lower the cost Um, in different ways depending on how the digital service is kind of structured. Um, And it can ensure that people really do have more timely services. Like we still need to accept that. There is the constraints of the healthcare system. Um, Let me speak to Africa in general, but especially to Canada. There continue to be constraints to the healthcare system of people being able to receive timely, convenient, affordable care, and especially the next level of care, so specialist care. So, you know, with the constraints of digital, um, with the constraints of the health system, because digital doesn't remove the constraints, for example, of human resources, with those constraints, can digital be done in a comprehensive manner to kind of bridge those constraints and make them do better? So the hype is that it can solve everything. The reality is that it can't, but the reality also is that it becomes an opportune moment. I think to bring it back to Kenya when we speak about telemedicine, I think there needs to be maybe some thinking about regulation, training, infrastructure, you know, if we are saying we want to use digital to bridge that access, how does that look for someone where they might not have digital access? You know, um, some things, yes, can be done by a call, but most things would need some sort of video. If we say we're using video for digital, how does the person, In a more rural setting, get access to that digital. So, I think the reality also is that there needs to be some thinking around that. There needs to be some thinking around even just the regulation in Kenya. I know the the council has tried to be responsive and put out something um, for now, but can we, you know, but the Data Health Act, uh, the, the Health Act, sorry, and the Data Health Act both speak of yes, we acknowledge e health, stroke. Health data, but we don't have the guidelines yet. Can we enact some of those things that we can really try and live up to the hype, even though it's a bit overhyped? So we can really try and get closer to that. Again, turning to the business aspect, assuming that there are people here with business, it's, you know, everyone thinks, oh, I want to produce a telemedicine service and all that, but there's also all the supporting infrastructure around that. And if anyone is thinking about that from a business perspective on this call is is there an opportunity to be the one who's providing that infrastructure, whether it's the video calls or the service to, to keep the health data, all those become, I think, business opportunities. And as digital accelerates, those digital opportunities can be tapped into beyond even just providing that direct service or being the one with the platform to allow telemedicine and teleconsultation.
5: I think that's a a super important point to think of telemedicine as increasing access or increasing value, not as a replacement for something that was already valuable or some way that somebody was seeing an actual provider and balancing the push for innovation with then that need to protect people's data and privacy as well. Um, So really great points on that. I wonder on the on the public health system note, whether Dr. Emmanuel, whether you are seeing more support in this moment for public health strengthening and for supporting that infrastructure for our public health system.
3: Oh, that's a great question. Um, However, um, it's a yes and no. Uh, the thing is, um, in this period, we we're seeing a lot of investment in infrastructure. Um, in that regard, yes, we are seeing a lot of support and strengthening um, in terms of uh, trying to bring out the ICUs and HDUs, which some of the country hospitals do not have. In that regard, yes, we are seeing a lot of strengthening in that aspect, giving PPEs, you know, um, trying to support in that in that particular area so that you can strengthen um, the health workers' inputs in tackling the COVID uh, situation, as it were. But know in this regard that uh, there's no substantive increase in human resource. Uh, Largely, the public sector has been deprived with the public uh, human resource, and it's largely overstretched, as it were. Uh, Go to any public institution, and uh, you'll see how stretched the health workers there are struggling to work in very deliberated uh, conditions and um, their workforce indeed is is very 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 small compared to the community that they serve um, and, and you see uh, much of our communities um, not being able to probably afford the private health care. In that regard, they opt to go for the public uh, facilities. And you see, then then you'll start having these issues that we talked about of unmet needs, of delayed care. In that aspect, then, no, we are not having that substantive investment, especially in human resource. but. In, in some sort of way, yes, right now we are getting some a bit of uh, boost with equipment and all that. But it's the people, it's the human resource that actually do the job and actually give out this healthcare by being given this kind of support.
5: Yeah. The, so what I hear you saying is that human resources are the cornerstone of a health system. And until we have investment in that, then um, we can only go so far. And just one other follow up on that. Um, Are you seeing, or how are you seeing, this moment as an opportunity to promote public and private collaboration? in the health system?
3: Well, the, the opportunity is quite immense, um, especially, I mean, during this discussion, we've been talking about digitalization, telemedicine, um, that is quite a huge avenue, opportunity for the, both the private and the public sector. The, the, the issue, again, we see that, that our health system is largely fragmented. And the referral system, in, like I had mentioned earlier, that this, the system in the public sector is quite well structured, Yes. However, that structure is basically on paper, but when you go on the ground, it's hugely fragmented. And even though when you have a referral system, probably from a lower cadre, probably from a level three to a level four, to a level five, to a level six hospital, a referral system, which is well-structured, but uh, you find... Uh, that at times that referral system is probably not used and people just prefer to go to level six hospitals where they know that we'll find the specialized care that probably they actually yearn or need to receive and which they're probably not getting in a level three or a level four hospital, which at a level four, you probably need to have a specialized care. In that regard, again, the private sector has a lot of the specialized care. One, because of remuneration, uh, they are able to attract more of the specialists to their entities. And in, in, in that front, then you have a, a huge gap in the sense that now most of the specialized specialists are in private as compared to uh, the public sector. So you see uh, those that are able to afford the private hospitals or the private care are able to quickly um, get um, the services. Again, the collaboration in the sense of strengthening between uh, public and private in the sense of probably capacity building. The other issue, again, is in regard to insurances. How best are the insurance companies able to tap in for what we call the Cardogo economy, uh, whereby like the NHIF does it, uh, being able to spread that risk to the extent that because the NHIF is a bit stretched in how it covers because it's it's an insurance scheme. It, it covers um, uh, a lot of Kenyans how is the private insurance companies being able to plug in for the Cadogo economy to be able to allow them to even, um, the, 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 those that are not able to afford the private uh, care, we're being able to also afford it so that we have the unmet needs and the, the delayed care uh, being handled uh, to that extent. So I'm seeing that private-public partnership can come in uh, very well. In, in those uh, specific
6: areas that I've managed.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so we just have a couple minutes before we will switch over to the audience Q&A. And so I wanted to get to one last question about being a leader in a time of such uncertainty. And we have a couple of people on this call um, who lead organizations. Um, so would just love to get your thoughts, Dr. Patrick, on, on how do you maintain a vision and strategize in the face of so much global uncertainty?
2: It's not an easy task. Um, I think, first of all, it requires um, a team that has... Uh, a very clear mind. So it's important to rally, uh, you know, just the right team, especially from a leadership perspective and to really take time also to, uh, you know, to to create some level of centeredness, you know, instead of just rushing into the wind and getting lost in the crisis. It really helps to sort of take moments to do what I would call, uh, you know, going to the balcony and just, you know, looking outside and, uh, you know, thinking of where we are. So I I think that's critical. Um, The other important thing is also just a shift in mindsets. You know we are not in ordinary circumstances. There is a lot of opportunity. Of course, there is downside risk as well, but I think the the opportunity is much uh, bigger. Um, and really focusing on uh, making sure that the uh, you know we are solving the problem because it's uh, I mean it's it's obviously an unprecedented problem. But I you know I personally strongly believe that there is a solution to it. Um, and that's why I'm of the view that you know, it takes a lot of minds to bring different um, components of the solution together. I don't think it's one-sided. It can't come from, you know, for example, from our side, um, just as insurance alone, we work a lot with hospital partners. We work a lot with the government. We work a lot with 3rd um, parties, technology solution providers. And I think it's just now the right time to sort of bring all those pieces together. Um, but on the basis of very you know, clear and, and focused
5: leadership. Yeah, thank you. What I hear you saying is that as much as we need to move quickly, we shouldn't rush because we need to be intentional about um, where we're headed as well. Um, I know that a couple of our panelists have to drop, jump off in the next minute. So just wanted to give Dr. Wargur a chance to give any closing thoughts and as well, Dr. Emmanuel after that.
4: Yeah, happy to. Um, and I'll use a, a format that shared Rachel, which I really liked on what should we start, what should we stop, and and what should we accelerate. I think we should start thinking of health as a potential economic driver, the provision of health, a lot of time it's seen as something that takes away. Um, and going back to the example I gave, or the two examples, whether it's the infrastructure around digital health um, or the local manufacturer, and a very big emphasis on starting to shift and think about health as something we can produce locally and an opportunity to to provide jobs, because that's something I think that doesn't come up enough. Even when we talk about solutions, it's what solutions can we bring in, not how can we use the fact that there needs to be increase in health um, given uh, provisional health and use that as an economic driver to provide jobs for young people um, and also just to increase our manufacturing. I think that's what maybe actually we need to start thinking in that way. Maybe we need to stop. A vertical and reactive approach to health. Realize that this has happened in a hundred years, but likely it's going to happen sooner with, with everything changing in the world. So think of health more comprehensively and how it can be resilient and not necessarily vertically as disease verticals, but how can we, as we look at the health system, ensure that it is something that is, can be reactive to something that comes up because we don't know what's gonna come up in the future. And lastly, I think we can accelerate local innovation. I think Lewis is a good example, but it's not a lack of it's not a lack of capacity. And maybe Lewis will, will add on to this. It's much more a lack of the infrastructure and the support around local innovation. And that's something certainly we should seek to accelerate and see how we can use that again to build that resilient health system, kind of tying it back to what I said earlier.
5: Uh, Dr. Amadi, the same quick final question. What should we start? What should we stop? What should we accelerate? It's
3: interesting that uh, Dr. Waruguru has mentioned most of the things that uh, I was looking forward to, to say, but uh, allow me just to probably reiterate and say, what, what I think we need to start is to invest in our human resource. Um, by and large, that is the, the driving force in, the, in, in, in health in care provision and that's where we need to start to keep investing in our human resource um ourselves especially in the public sector to uh, uh, um, um Uh, come and recruit more doctors, recruit more health workers into a public system and to be able to actually maintain them in the public healthcare system so that they can provide the services uh, that are required by the citizenry. Um, What we need to stop is being reactive. We need to be proactive. We knew uh, once COVID hit Egypt and once it hit South Africa, I mean, it was close home and we were not well prepared. We thought we were, uh, but as it is right now, we've seen how how drastic um, it, it has been, it has hit our economy, uh, realize that health is wealth. Uh, so the health of the economy will definitely determine our wealth, you know? Um, so we need to be proactive. We need to be really proactive in, in how we do our things. Um, to accelerate, what we need to accelerate is probably in the digitalization and innovation um, in, 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 in the health space. Uh, because our health system is largely uh, fragmented and uh, digital- the digitalization of our health system and, and, and healthcare provision is going to, in a way, um, make it more accessible and, and reduce some things to do with delayed care. For example, where we have a lot of innovation right now in our country in regards to even booking appointments, uh, telemedicine and all that, um, this will reduce the the time lag or the time space between one uh, getting a service and uh, when they actually need it, especially probably in emergencies and, it's, and, and in things For example, um, like in a healthcare system, you can find someone probably requires to have surgery done, but they will have uh, a protracted period of a waiting time. uh, to have the surgery done and, and you know in, in digitalization we are in an innovation in that space you are able to find a specialist um, in, in a click of, of, of a button uh, who's nearby you and you're able to get that service as soon as possible instead of waiting for months uh, before you get that service done so I think uh, accelerating uh, digitalization and innovation in that aspect of telemedicine and e-health will quite as much as um, help um, those that require um these services, um, yes. Thank you so much.
5: Great, thank you so much too. Um, those are all great points. Um, so, Dr. Patrick. So, I think I think for me,
2: what I would say is that there's a lot of opportunity that you know has been created by the pandemic as much as it is a shock, but it requires a huge mindset uh, shift for us to be able to uh, tackle it going forward, both in the profit and in the non-profit uh, spaces. But it's doable. I think, I think it also calls for sort of breaking the traditional boundaries, um, particularly in terms of collaboration uh, and creating the um, ecosystems I was talking about. Um, and, and also, you know, really prudent use of digital and real use of digital, um, and in a way that is also simple to the end user. Um, you know, for example, we've seen quite a bit of uptake of telemedicine, uh, but I think it could have been much faster um, or we could make it much faster um, with the solutions being even more simpler to uh, the end user and being more accessible. Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, promise. Um, the, the, I would say the biggest strategy that would have out of this pandemic is to go back to the way we were.
5: Yes, thank you. Nothing, yeah, that's why we have the term the new normal. <laughs> uh, and Lewis?
1: Yeah, I think I'll take a more contrarian kind of a thought about the future and um, based, based out of the framework that you had highlighted about uh, what we should do, what, what we should accelerate. I think we should stop uh, complaining and actually do something that's actually uh, feasible and uh, leads to to concrete uh, impact. So for example, I, would, I know so many companies that uh, can actually implement telehealth in the con- in Kenya, actually, but we haven't seen any uptake. You know, we speak about telemedicine telehealth, but we have brilliant technology, but there's no uptake. And there are so many hurdles for a technology company to actually succeed in Kenya, a health company to succeed. So it's very bureaucratic. But apart from that, I think that um, we need to develop the developing world. The value of technology is not copying. We need to try to build our own that, that is more efficient, based out of our own problems. We, should, we, have, we need to have an, a, a, an overhaul on, on the belief of uh, the technology coming from the continent. I think an example is like us. We started as a, as a Kenyan team. Um, in, in, uh, there's so many innovative products, companies, in the continent, but there's no uptick. And that's the truth in the healthcare system. So there's both, there's a positive aspect and there's a negative aspect. Once we eliminate some of these bureaucracies, then it's going to be really easy to scale technologies.
0: In the corona economy, businesses are having to navigate unfamiliar business climates. There is no reliable old normal operating model and every business needs to adapt to new ways in order to become leaders and prevent obsolescence. The What's Good Redesigning Society series is a go-to resource for business leaders in need of inspiration and exposure to different schools of thoughts to help them create new normal-driven business models. For more of these episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast channel on Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform of your choice. To stay in touch with us, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WeAreMetaNBO or email us on Nairobi at meta.co. Until next time, thanks for listening.